0: I was born in New York. Uh, My family are Israeli. I live presently in England because it's halfway between America and Israel. And as a kid in New York, I went to a Catholic school and the Jewish community center. Uh, I was both sprinkled and clipped. (laughs) And I tell people I saw two religions in my life I didn't agree with growing up. One a total corruption of the Old Testament and the other a total corruption of the New. But when I was in university as a science student, I tried to disprove the Bible with science and then with history and archaeology. And the more I tried to disprove it, the more evidence I found to believe it. And so like the founders of Calvary Chapel, I was one of those hippies who God took out of the world of drugs and radical politics and the rest of it and the occult. And Jesus gave me a new life. But... This time of year, you call it Christmas. In Hebrew, we call it Hag HaMolad, literally the Feast of the Nativity. We're going to look this morning at the Jewish perspective of the Nativity of Jesus, looking at it from a Judeo-Christian perspective. Most of my Christian life as a believer, I've come to terms with an issue that I've never fully understood. Jewish people are God's covenant people. They still remain God's covenant people, according to both Jeremiah and the Apostle Paul, yet Despite the fact that they had the scriptures, the prophecies, they expected the Messiah to come, they were in a covenant relationship with God, only a small percentage of Jewish people were ready for the first coming of Jesus. I'm absolutely convinced the same thing is true for his return. Although the Christian church is in a covenant relationship crafted in by faith, although the church has his word, has the prophecies, in theory believes in his return, the same was only a small percentage of Jews were ready for the first coming of Jesus. Only a small percentage of people who say they're Christians are going to be ready for his return. If you want to know what kind of Christians are going to be ready for the return of Christ, let's understand what kind of Jews were ready for his first coming. But first of all, let's look at Colossians chapter 2 verse 16. Colossians 2:16. Therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival, a new moon, or a Sabbath. These things are a mere shadow of what is to come. The substance belongs to the Messiah. Let no one judge you about what days you keep or what days you don't keep. Just keep them unto the Lord. That's a Hagamolad, a nativity, a Christmas based on Jesus. Not that other gentleman in the red suit who I'm convinced is a communist. He dresses in red and only gives away things other people pay for. Let no one act as your judge in regard to these things. My family, being Israeli Jews, celebrate Hanukkah as Jesus did in John chapter 10. We don't celebrate Christmas, we just have nativity. We go to carol service, but that's about it. We celebrate Hanukkah this time of year. On the other hand, Romans chapter 14 gives us the other side of the same coin. Romans chapter 14, we're told by Paul the Apostle, verse 4, Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, the Lord's able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike, let each be convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it to the Lord, and he who eats for the Lord, and so forth. So, Colossians tells us don't let anyone judge us for what days we observe, but Romans tells us not to judge anyone else for what days they observe or do not observe. It's not about days, it's about Jesus. Having said that, I don't care if you celebrate Christmas or not. That's up to you. It's a matter of culture, a matter of personal choice. What I do care about is the theology of the nativity. The theology of the nativity. We don't know the year or the time of year Jesus was born. Speculatively, some say it could have been the Hebrew feast of Hag the feast of Booths, but we don't know. What we do know is he was born, and we know the following. His first coming teaches about his second. Look with me, please, to the Gospel of St. Luke, Luke's nativity narrative. Chapter 2, verse 1, It came about in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of the inhabited earth. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. Caesar Augustus, formerly Octavius, was the first Roman emperor deified in his lifetime. He was proclaimed the god by the Roman Senate. His real name was Octavius. So you had Israel under a foreign occupation, and you had an emperor of the Roman Empire being worshipped as god, who assigned everybody a number. He didn't actually print the number on them, but everyone was signed a number in the Roman Empire, which constituted most of the known world. This emperor, who was worshipped as god, at a time Israel was... Occupied, assigned everybody a number in order to maintain economic control of their own world. What happens in his first coming happens in his second. You see a resurrected Roman Empire, you see an emperor of some description who will be deified, and he will also assign people's numbers in order to economically control the world. The first coming teaches about the second. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, please. In Hebrew, we call Revelation... Chazon Yochanan, literally the vision of John. A great sign appeared in heaven in verse 1. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and her head a crown of twelve stars. She was with child and cried out in labor and pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, on his head were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that she, he might devour her child. Now, of course, we know she gives birth to a son who is to rule, and she's pr- uh, protected for 1,260 days in verse 6. But at the end of this chapter, we read, at verse 17, when this man child is protected, the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of Jesus and hold to the testimony of Jesus They keep the commandments of God. What happens in the book of Revelation chapter 12 replays what Herod did. Herod was an ethnic Nabataean. He was a Moabite, same as Ruth in his ancestry, who converted to Judaism for political reasons. His family did. But culturally and politically, he was really a Roman. Okay. Genesis 49 The prophecies of Jacob said the scepter will not depart from Judah until Shiloh comes. Now you had a Herodian king who was really politically a Roman on the throne. The Messiah had to come. This was a big issue. The way Herod tried to kill Jesus coming out of Mary. And Jesus was supernaturally protected. And then Herod goes crazy and kills all the male babies in Bethlehem. This happens again. It foreshadows what happens in Revelation chapter 12 with the Antichrist. Herod is again a major shadow or type of the Antichrist to come. He's going to try to preempt the return of Christ. I won't go into the depths now, but realize the first coming teaches about the second. Antichrist comes in the character of Herod the Great. What did Herod do? He expanded the temple for his own reasons. And somehow the Antichrist is associated with the temple. His first coming teaches about his second. There is much in this. But what's most important is Why were so so few (coughs) of God's own covenant people ready for the first coming? Why were so few Jews ready? And what kind of Jews were ready? When we know what kind of Jews were ready for the first coming of Jesus, we will know quite clearly what kind of Christians will be ready for his return. Let's look first of all, though, at what kind of Jews were not ready for his first coming. We have two nativity narratives. Let's turn to Matthew's first of all. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of St. Matthew. Habits el te in Hebrew. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Now, Matthew 24 and Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse, tells us the second coming of Christ will likewise be preceded by signs in the cosmos. Okay, The signs in the heavens for his first coming, signs in the heavens for his second coming. Wise men will always know the signs, know what they mean. We live in a perilous age. When Calvary chapels first began, same time I got saved in New York, when Calvary's began on the, the west coast, Everybody talked about the return of Jesus. Everybody was interested in reading the late great Planet Earth or something like that. It was the talk. Everybody was interested in Naranatha. Now we're over 30 years closer to the return of Christ than we were when I was first saved in February of 1972. We're more than 30 years closer, nearly 35 years closer. And there's far fewer people and far less interest in the return of Christ now than there was nearly a generation ago. As a matter of fact, and I'm only pointing out a fact, Rick Warren tells people, don't deal with biblical prophecies in the end times. It's a diversion. Now, when Jesus says, be watchful, and churches are are listening to people saying, don't do that, or when you have major figures saying the rapture is a deception and a lie, people like Rick Joyner openly teach this This there's no rapture. This is frightening. This is frightening. This is a deception in itself. The fact that there's less interest in the return of Jesus now than there was 30, 35 years ago, that is a deception in itself. One of the reasons God has blessed Calvary Chapel is Calvary Chapel has always tried to look at contemporary events in the Middle East and so forth from the perspective of end times prophecy. But now you've got other churches in California saying, don't do that, don't do that. This is frightening. The wise men will always know the signs. However, let's look. When Herod heard it, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And he gathered all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, and he began to inquire of them where the Messiah, where the Mashiach, would be born. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, and they quote from Micah 5.2, As for you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. Out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Notice Herod, the clergy the Levitical priesthood now, and the scribes. The scribes were the sophim. They were the academic theologians of the day. The scholars, the clergy, and the national religious leadership were not ready for Jesus to come. But that was only the beginning. All Jerusalem was troubled with him. They didn't want Jesus to come. Most people didn't want Jesus to come. This was his covenant people. This was Jerusalem where he'd become. They even knew the theology. They even knew the doctrine. They even knew the prophecies. He'd be born in Bethlehem. They could quote Micah 5 too. They even knew the prophecies. But they were troubled. Almost every lie of Satan perpetrated against the church today in the western world is designed to get people to trust in this life or this world. Kingdom now theology, post-millennialism, faith, prosperity, God wants you rich, you're a king's kid, blab it and grab it. All of this stuff is designed to seduce us to trust in this life or this world. All Jerusalem was troubled when Jesus was coming. Don't expect most of the Christian church to be any different. Mainstream Christendom, including many people who would today claim to be evangelicals, really don't want him to come. Their hope is in this world. Those are the kinds of Jews not ready for the first coming. The leadership of the temple, of the clergy and of academic scholarship, of theology didn't want them to come. And If you look at the church today mainstream seminaries they're moving further and further and further away. But those are the kinds who were not ready. Let's look at the kinds of people who were. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 1. In the days of Herod, in verse 5, there was a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abiyah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elisheva, Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in the commandments and requirements of the Lord. Although there was much hypocrisy and corruption among the clergy, although there was simony and collaboration with the Romans in the Sanhedrin, moral corruption, financial corruption, political corruption, a corrupt theocracy, there was righteous people within it. This guy, he didn't care how corrupt the Aaronic priesthood became. He and his wife wanted the Messiah to come. They were righteous and devout, walking blamelessly in the commandments of the Lord. Some people will be faithful always, some people will always remain faithful. But let's continue. Turn to the Gospel of St. Luke again, chapter 1, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. And he tells her the Magnificat when he announces to her that she's the greatest woman who ever lived. My soul magnifies the Lord, is her response in verse 46, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now you have to understand the Magnificat from a Jewish perspective. First of all, her name was not Mary, her name was Miriam, having the Hebrew root of bitterness because, a Simeon prophesied, a sword would pierce her own heart because of what would happen to her son. Her name was Miriam. She was probably, a, certainly a teenager, and she did not have blonde hair and blue eyes. She had dark complexion. She had dark eyes and dark hair. She was a nice Yiddish Heshena a Jewish girl. <laughs> this is the real Miriam. Now, Miriam grew up in Nazareth. I know a number of you have been to Israel, If you've been to Tel Megiddo, you've been to Tel Megiddo, Har Megiddo, and you look out across the Jezreel Valley, straight across at 12 o'clock, you'd see a mountain where the story of Deborah took place called Mount Tabor, Har Tabor. At 11 o'clock, there's another mountain where Nazareth is. You can stand right on the Tel Megiddo, Armageddon, look across the Jezreel Valley, the Valley of Armageddon, and you see two hills, one at 12 and one at 11. 12 is Tabor, and just about a few miles away, is Nazareth. Okay, Mary would have grown up in Nazareth looking out at Mount Tabor, just in the valley, but just across a big ravine. And she would have known as a Jewish girl that that is where the story of Deborah took place and the story of Ya'el. And you have the song of Deborah from Judges chapter 5. And in verse 24 we read the story. Most blessed of women is Ya'el, the wife of Heber and the Kenite, most blessed is she among women. Blessed is Yael among women. Now you've got these two women. You've got Yael and Deborah. And so in Luke you have a literary parallelism with Mary and her cousin, her older cousin. Okay. Little did Mary know as a little girl growing up on Nazareth looking at the hill opposite where the story of Deborah took place that one day they would be saying of her, Blessed are you among women. This is the background. You see this particularly in the Septuagint, the Greek text of of Judges when you compare it to the Gospel. Now she's told, blessed are you among women. This is the greatest woman who ever lived. Gabriel tells her, you'll be the mother of the Messiah. Understand Gabriel, Gabriel in Hebrew, the mighty one of God. Whenever you see that angel, he's God's messenger of the coming of the Messiah. Turn with me back please to the book of Daniel, chapter 8. Verse 16, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Gabriel was always the one that helped people to understand God's purposes for Israel, particularly concerning the coming of the Messiah. In Daniel chapter 9, we see him again. It is Gabriel. Verse 21, while I was speaking in prayer, when the man Gabriel, the mighty one of God, who I'd seen in the vision previously, came to me in my extreme weariness. Give him the instruction. Gabriel explains to Daniel, chapter 9, about the coming of Christ. Chapter 9, verse 24, 25. The Messiah had to come and die before the second temple would be destroyed. In Hebrew, Hamashiach dasha The Messiah had to come and die before the second temple would be destroyed. He's always the one who explains about the coming of Jesus. So it's entirely fitting that the same one who explains it to Daniel about the coming of the Messiah would now come and explain it to Miriam. So now we have the greatest woman who ever lived, Miriam, and she's told she's going to be the mother of the Mashiach, the Messiah, who would save his people from their sins. And the only thing the greatest woman who ever lived could say is, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. Now you have a problem. If the greatest woman who ever lived says she needs a savior, if she says, my baby is going to save his people from their sin and I need a savior, and a certain religion says, munificentissimus Deus, the Immaculate Conception, no, she doesn't. Mary had no sin. You've got a choice. We either believe Mary or we believe the Pope. Personally, I believe Mary. Actually, I believe Miriam. If the greatest woman who ever lived tells me she needs to be saved from sin, because all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God, none is righteous, no, not one. If the greatest woman who ever lived tells me she needs a Savior, I believe her. I love Miriam. I extol Miriam. Miriam. I think Miriam is fantastic. I think Miriam is sensational. I look forward greatly to meeting Miriam. But I don't want anything to do with that stupid, dumb, blonde, bimbo, Shiksa Mary. They're two different people. I need a savior. Unless you know that you cannot possibly justify yourself to a holy and perfect God. That the only hope is that God becomes a man and pays the price for your sin. Your only hope is Mary's baby who would save his people. You will die in your sins as well as I would have. But he saved me, a cocaine dealer and a cocaine addict. doesn't matter who you are, what you did. If the greatest woman who ever lived, if Mary needed a savior, where does that put the rest of us? That's the kind of Jew ready for the first coming of Jesus. That's the kind of Christian going to be ready for him to come back. If you don't know you can't save yourself with your good works or your religion, you're not going to be saved. We don't do good works to get saved. We do good works because we've been saved. Mary understood that. Nice Jewish girl. It's going to be marvelous to meet Mary. Mary. But let's look at what other kinds of Jews who are ready for his first coming. Well, chapter 2 of Luke, verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. And the angel said, Don't be afraid, I bring you good news. Now the word for good news in Greek is Evangelion. In Hebrew, Pesora. In English, it's the same word for gospel. I bring you the gospel, great joy, which shall be for all the people. Today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is the Messiah, of the Lord. The Hebrew word for shepherd... Is Roe. Psalm 23 in Hebrew, Adonai Roe. Literally, Yahweh is my shepherd. Okay. Hebrew, Roe. Greek, Episcopal. It's also the word in Greek and Hebrew for pastor. Pastor equals shepherd. Episcopo or a. We have to understand here, it's speaking in metaphor. When it gets dark, they watch their sheep. The night is the most frequent metaphor and biblical typology for the approach of the great tribulation. Watchman, watchman, how far is the night? Is he coming in the second watch of the night or the third? The song of Solomon, the bridegroom, comes for the bride in the night. Matthew 25, the bridegroom comes in the night. Is he coming in the second watch of the night or the third? He's coming like a thief in the night. Work while you have the light. For night will come, no man can work. It gets very dark before Jesus comes. A terrible darkness. We're seeing it already. There's communities, cities in the United States, that will allow Hindu feasts, Muslim feasts, New Age feasts, anything. But the ACLU will litigate against you if you try to have a Christian feast. This is only the beginning. It's getting darker and darker and darker. You know last year there were evangelical churches that canceled their Christmas service because it fell on a Sunday? One of them at Calvary Chapel, I'm sorry to say. But then with such pressure, he had to reverse his his decision. This is terrible. It will get very dark. But understand about the shepherd. It was this time of year that the Lord Jesus spoke of shepherds, Hanukkah time. Turn with me briefly to John chapter 10, the same time of year. Your Bible translates it, the Feast of Dedication. Actually, it's Hanukkah in Hebrew, Hanukkah, dedication. And Jesus says this, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep in verse 11. He who is a hireling and not a shepherd, who was not the owner of the sheep, beholds the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them away. He scatters them. He flees because he's a hireling and not concerned about the sheep. Peter tells us good shepherds will be like Jesus in Peter's epistle. They care about the sheep. But you see, we've got three kinds of pastors. There's three kinds of pastors. You've got good shepherds like Jesus, you've got wolves in sheep's clothing, and you've got hirelings. Not many pastors today are good shepherds. I'm not saying that necessarily makes them wolves in sheep's clothing, some are. But we have an increasing number in the last generation of hirelings. It becomes their job. The ministry becomes not a calling, not a vocation from heaven. It becomes a career. They follow models of church growth based on marketing and psychology. They follow secular management techniques not subordinated to the word of God. It becomes what they're hired to do. It's a job. Well, how do you tell the difference between a real pastor and a hireling? A real pastor will protect his sheep from the wolves. They will warn about false doctrine. They will warn about spiritual deception. They'll warn about the money preachers on television. Kenny and Benny, they'll tell you. That's not biblical. They'll do what Chuck Smith did. They'll kick people out if they have to. That's a shepherd. A hireling won't do that. A hireling will go along with the program because he's concerned with the numbers because numbers are money. His priorities are very different. He thinks like a businessman but not a shepherd. A shepherd thinks like a pastor. Things will get very dark in the last days but there will be shepherds who will watch their sheep. Those are the kinds of Jews ready for the first coming of Jesus. Jesus. And those are exactly the kinds of Christians going to be ready for him to come back. But let's continue. Let's go back to Luke's gospel and meet some more people. We read in Luke about some incredible people. When you have a supernatural conception, in this case a geriatric one, the supernatural conceptions in the Bible, like like Samuel or Samson or John the Baptist, they foreshadow that the Messiah would be supernaturally conceived. You understand what I'm saying? They foreshadow that the Messiah would be supernaturally conceived, as the Messiah was. But we read about these two absolutely amazing elderly people. When Jesus was born, when Jesus was born, there was an old gentleman in the church, and his name was Simeon. Quite a man, Simeon. In chapter 2, verse 24, we read that Mary came to bring the sin offering of what was said in the law, that is, the Torah of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, first of all, if Mary had no sin, why did she have to bring a sin offering? Secondly, she bought a poor person's sin offering. Had Mary and Joseph been wealthy, they would have bought sheep. There was a money preacher from America who came to England, where I live, and someone from our ministry asked him, he gave the whole spiel to how Jesus was rich and how his family were rich, and he wants you rich. If his family were rich, why did they bring a poor person's offering instead of a rich person's offering? The ushers just had him thrown out because they couldn't answer the question. So she comes into the temple and in verse 25 there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Now think of it, all Jerusalem mourned when Jesus came. They didn't want him to come. But this old gentleman, he longed for the consolation of Israel. He had nothing else to live for. He was getting older. His teeth were going. His hair was going. Couldn't get a date. (laughs) But he knew by the Holy Spirit he wasn't going to give up the ghost until Jesus came. Now a lot of people say, "The Lord showed me this, and God told me that, and I have a prophecy, and Lord if the Lord shows you something like that, it happens. <laughs> the proof of the pudding is in the eating. Be careful of people who predict things in God's name that don't happen. Deuteronomy 28 tells 18 tells us they're false prophets. People who predict things in God's name that don't happen. they're false prophets. This guy knew it. He was the genuine article. didn't matter to him what the rest of the people were like. He wanted Jesus to come. And it says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Spirit. He would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. He came in in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Yeshua, Jesus, to carry out for him the custom of the law, circumcision, it would have been eight days now, we call it, He took him into his hands and blessed the Lord, saying, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Now, he would have been speaking in the Hebrew dialect of Aramaic. Salvation in Hebrew is Yeshua. Jesus' name is Yeshua. There would have been a wordplay in what he actually said. The child's name was Yeshua, which means salvation. A light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And his father and mother were amazed at the things being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Miriam, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, a sword will pierce even your own soul. To that end, the thoughts of the hearts of many may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Thaniel, of the tribe of Asher. Now the tribe of Asher was one of the ten northern tribes, Forget about the people who tell you that the ten tribes were lost. They were not lost. In the days of King Asa, the book of Kings tell us the faithful people came south and they retained their tribal identity. In James' epistle, James writes to the twelve tribes. The others either were taken into the Assyrian captivity or they stayed or intermarried with the Assyrians, they became the Samaritans. We know exactly what happened to these tribes. They're not lost. The Bible and Jewish history both tell us. But she's from the tribe of Asher her ancestors probably would have came south in the days of King Asa when the backsliding in the north had become so terrible that the faithful people couldn't stay there anymore. And then as a widow, she, she, she advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayer. And at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Little old ladies, you know, sometimes you see a pastor and God is blessing him and the church is growing and people are being saved, and he's a good preacher, a good Bible teacher, very pastoral guy, wonderful man. Praise God, God's blessing the pastor when we get to heaven, we're going to find out the real secret of his success was the little old lady washing the church steps who prayed for him every day for 25 years. (laughs) I know little old ladies like that. Guys like me, I have chutzpah, audacity, New York brashness, call it what you want. But these little old ladies, to the age of 84, all she could do was pray and fast and serve God. And when Jesus came, She just couldn't stop talking about him. That was the kind of Jew ready for the first coming of Jesus. That's the kind of Christian going to be ready for him to come back. Longing for the consolation of Israel. But you know, the New Testament tells us in the last days, most men's love will grow cold. That lawlessness will increase. Well, that was very much the state of Judaism when Jesus was born. But there was another guy called Joseph. His name in Hebrew, Yosef, Yahweh shall add, God shall add. You have to understand why Jesus' foster father's name was Joseph. In Judaism, we have two pictures of the Messiah. HaMashiach ben Yosef and HaMashiach ben David. Messiah son of Joseph, Messiah son of David. The son of Joseph comes in the character of Joseph from the book of Genesis. The son of David comes in the character of King David. Now we as Christians know it's one Messiah, two comings. The rabbis say it's two messiahs and they argue back and forth in the Talmud, how can they be two of them and all this. Joseph in the book of Genesis was betrayed by his Jewish brothers into the hands of the Gentiles. God took that betrayal and he turned it around and made it away for all Israel and all the world to be saved. So Jesus was betrayed by his Jewish brothers, the son of Joseph. And God took that betrayal and turned it around and made it away for all Israel and all the world to be saved. Joseph, in the book of Genesis, was condemned with two criminals, and as he prophesied, one would live and one would die. Jesus, the son of Joseph, was condemned with two criminals, the good thief. And he prophesied, one lives, one dies. Okay? Joseph went from a place of Condemnation to a place of exaltation in a single day, and every knee had a bow to him. So Jesus, the son of Joseph, goes from a place of condemnation to a place of exaltation in a single day in the resurrection. Every knee shall bow. Joseph was betrayed by his brother Yehuda, Judas, for 20 pieces of silver. After inflation, Jesus, the son of Joseph, was betrayed by Yehuda, Judas, for 30 pieces of silver. They bring Joseph's shroud. Uh, cloak to prove he's not in the pit. They bring Jesus' shroud to prove he's not in the tomb. It goes on and on like this. Only Joseph's brothers, who betrayed him to the Gentiles, they didn't recognize him at the first coming, remember? They recognized him at the second, and they wept bitterly. And so we read in Zechariah 12, Jesus, his brothers, the Jews, don't recognize him at the first coming. They recognize him at the second, and they weep bitterly. One mourns for an only son. This is the Messiah, son of Joseph. In his first coming, he's the son of Joseph. That's why his foster father's name had to be Joseph, because he's in that character. It would have been a marker, an indicator to Jewish people. This Joseph was an interesting man. We're told that he kept Mary a virgin. Literally in Greek, he did not gnosko, know her intimately or sexually, until Jesus had been born. An unconsummated marriage was not a legal marriage in Judaism. Now again, I'm not here to throw mud at Roman Catholics or Roman Catholicism by any means. I'm simply saying, if Mary was perpetually a virgin, as they teach, Jesus was not from a legitimately married (laughs) family. It's dishonoring to Mary and Joseph and to Jesus to say they had an unconsummated marriage. St. Paul tells us it is wrong to have an unconsummated marriage in the New Testament. I'm supposed to believe that Mary and Joseph did something that the New Testament says is wrong? (laughs) Well, it says until, Pletharon in Greek, Jesus was not the product of an unconsummated marriage. He was the product of a supernatural conception. But let's look. Joseph didn't know what was going on, obviously. Being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, in verse 19, he was a righteous man. He was more concerned with her dignity when he, as far as he could have known, that she had been guilty of infidelity. But he wanted to protect her dignity. He wanted to hide her sin. <laughs> he wanted to hide her sin. I want God to hide my sin. Therefore, I want to hide your sin. Matthew 18 tells us you don't go public about someone's sin. Unless it's the last resort of last resorts, you try. you go to the person, you. Now, you go to someone about false doctrine, people who are misleading the church, they get confronted openly. That's biblical. But sin? We try to hide each other's sin. You want God to hide your sin? I don't blame you. I certainly want him to hide mine, especially from the police. <laughs> Having said that, We have to hide each other's. He was a righteous man in an unrighteous age. Most men's love will grow cold in the last days. But Joseph's love did not grow cold. Quite a story. Quite a situation. His first coming is a picture of his second. Herod, the leadership, the religious establishment... The theocrats, the academic theologians, the scholars, they were not ready. They knew the scripture, but they were not ready. St. Paul tells us in the last days we're going to have people like that holding the form of religion but denying the power therein. They weren't ready. But a teenage girl named Miriam was ready. She knew she needed to be saved. But an elderly priest and his wife, Elizabeth. See, Jesus had to have cousins who were priests because only the Messiah could be both a king and a priest. Kings had to be descendants of David. High priests had to be descendants of Aaron. Only the Messiah could be both a king and a priest. And so you have this old man and a godly wife. didn't matter how corrupt the clergy became. They were righteous and devout as was Simeon, as was Anna. Now it's interesting, you've got a young person like Miriam, but most of the people we're told about were older people. And then, of course, the shepherds, we don't know how old they were, I suppose middle-aged. There's going to be young people. There's going to be older people, retired people, elderly people. There's going to be middle-aged people. But there's only going to be a faithful remnant from each. An Anna, a Simeon, a Joseph, a Miriam, wise men, those who should have been wise but weren't. These were the kinds of Jews ready for the first coming of Yeshua the Messiah. And these are exactly the kinds of Christians going to be ready for him to return it will get dark it is getting dark and will get darker we'll continue to see more apostasy in the church we'll continue to see less interest in the return of Jesus even among those to whom it should be central to their thinking but it doesn't matter the masses may go one way but the faithful will go the other. In this church, you will have a Simeon and an Anna. You will have a Joseph. You will have a good shepherd. These were the kinds of Jews ready for the first coming of Jesus. And these are exactly the kinds of Christians going to be ready for him to come back. My prayer for you people and for your family and for my family, my son Eli is going in the Israeli army today, is that by the grace of the God of Israel, your fellowship and mine, your family and mine, you and I will be among that faithful remnant ready for Jesus to return. My dear brethren in Jesus, Christmas is coming. God bless.